In the 1990s, it always felt like a matter of time before Alain Prost would take over Ligier, and when it finally happened in 1997, it got off to a great start. But behind the scenes, Prost had serious doubts about going through with it, even in the days before he signed the paperwork. And despite the team taking a credible sixth in the championship and almost winning a race, while star driver Olivier Panis was out with broken legs, 1997 was as good as it would get for Prost. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for what I can assure you is not the only episode we will ever do on Prost Grand Prix here on Bring Back V10s are Karun Chanduk and Matt Beer. Now, Karun, welcome back. Good to have you on again. You and Matt were both very quick to raise your hands for this episode when we started discussing ideas for Series 5. So when you think of the first year of Alain Prost's F1 team, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Probably the Spanish Grand Prix. You know, all of a sudden we've got Panis in the uh, Bridgestone short Prost Mugen Honda chasing down Jacques Villeneuve in you know, what was the dominant car, what should have been the dominant car of that season. Uh, and at various points of the race, he was quicker than Jacques. Uh, so for me, yeah, that was that was a standout race really of that Yeah. What about you, Matt? There's there's quite a lot to choose from when we do one of these episodes where you're looking at a full season. I, I'm going on a couple of weeks later than Karun and uh, a slightly different vibe. It's, the, it's that Prost in the tyre wall in Montreal and one of those things where the TV cuts to it and you think, oh, that... That doesn't look pleasant. That doesn't look comfy. Yeah, that was a, a a big, big moment in Prost's season. And who knows how the year might have looked without that incident. We will get to Canada and cover it in plenty of detail. Before we get into Prost in 1997, let's give some more shout outs to those of you leaving us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts, which are always appreciated. So thank you to Johnny O85, Chris J Thompson84, Easter Ferrari and Andy S17. And thank you to everyone who has been voting for us in the motorsport category of the Sports Podcast Awards. I said we'd do some shout outs for that as well. So thank you to Stephen Gates, Robert Dickinson, Ed Sir and Jamie O'Leary for your support as well. By the time this episode comes out, voting should still be open. So if you'd like to vote for us or the Race F1 podcast, which is also nominated, uh, you can vote for free. Head over to sportspodcastawards.com and find the motorsports category. We're nearing the end of the series now, so it won't be long before we're answering your questions for our final two episodes. You're almost out of time to get your questions in about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. But if you hurry, you can still submit them as ever using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And remember, if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus bonus content between series, among plenty of other benefits, check out the Race Members Club at the-race.com forward slash members club. So we've mentioned in plenty of previous episodes how talk of Prost taking over Ligier always seemed to surface every couple of years, but it was clear by January of 1997 that this time it looked like it would finally get over the line. Before deciding to take the plunge with his own team, Prost had spent 1995 and part of 1996 in an advisory role for McLaren, and he said giving up that role was one of the few regrets he has from his career. Of course, we couldn't do an episode about Alain Prost without mentioning Maurice Hamilton's excellent book. I get asked about this book all the time, so if you're curious about it, it's simply called Alain Prost McLaren, 
So I guess if you search for Alan Prost McLaren book online, it will uh, you'll find it pretty quickly. In that book, Prost says, I was very happy working with McLaren. And one of my few regrets is that I left in 1996. Buying Ligier put an end to discussions Ron Dennis and I were having about what we could do together. One of the ideas we had was for me to have a McLaren team in America. So Matt, we can't pass up this opportunity to talk about late 90s IndyCar racing because I doubt this was going to be a McLaren NASCAR team. Kart, as it was known at the time, was absolutely thriving in this era. So how do you think an Alain Prost run McLaren team could have got on during those years? I put so much thought into all the possibilities for this. Uh, I, th- I think it would have gone pretty well and then very badly would be my my suggestion. Now, I'm going to try and do this really quickly. This was a time at which you didn't need tons of experience to be successful in kart. You had teams like Tasman coming out of Indy Lights and being competitive straight away. Pack West rose very quickly. So the fact, as long as they got a decent engineer and had a decent one of the decent packages on the grid. I think uh, a, Mc- a McLaren and Prost branded team could have been a race winner really quickly. Maybe you, you would imagine they'd have aligned with what McLaren had in F1, so probably Mercedes engines and initially Goodyear tyres. Mercedes engines were pretty good in 97. I reckon maybe that Prost team would have done what Hogan did with Dario Franchitti in 97, which was be very fast and maybe crash less than Dario did at that point. <laughs> um, but where I think it would have gone wrong is that they probably would have had to stay aligned with Mercedes because of the strength of the McLaren relationship in F1 and the Mercedes car engine absolutely nosedived in competitiveness in the, in the second half of the 1990s. Um, after being so awesome with uh, with Penske initially. So that element, I think he would have been dragged down by Mercedes, but also McLaren at that time doing doing cart, there would have been a lot of swaggering hubris, surely. Like Ron Dennis wouldn't have managed to avoid being massively condescending towards all of American motorsport. And can I imagine Alain Prost and Ron Dennis going off to the Indy Racing League when that started getting all the big teams and just going for a bunch of oval races? No, nah, I really can't. So I think it would have started out pretty well, probably got quite embarrassing as, as Mercedes declined, and then they would have cut and run before things got really messy with the split. So a bit like the Prost F1 team then. Um, the, the sale of Ligier dragged on so much through January that the team ended up launching its 1997 car still as Ligier. Obviously at the launch, the main topic of conversation was Prost, who was not in attendance, Current team owner Flavio Briatori was, though, and he was happy to discuss the Prost situation at length. Briatori and Bernie Eccleston said the deal was almost over the line for the team to become Prost, although Briatori stressed that the team was working as if nothing was going on in the background, and he was happy to keep it going as Ligier if things didn't work out. He also added that the team was only available to Prost, not to any other interested buyers. Briatori said this possibility with Prost was unique because it's good for the team and good for the people in Ligier. It's special conditions because Prost in France is a very special person. It's a very friendly deal. And Briatori added that Ligier was no longer in the dramatic financial state it was in when he bought into the team in 1994. And he'd finally bought out Guy Ligier's remaining stake just a few months earlier in the summer of 96. And he said the team was looking well as a business and was in a completely new era with a lot of potential. Karun, it's famously said that the main reason Briatori bought Ligier was to get his hands on the Renault engine deal for Benetton. But looking beyond that, given the state Ligier was in in the early 90s, is it fair to say that Flavio did quite a good job shoring the team up behind the scenes? I think so, yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, when Prost initially went to 
test and potentially buy Ligier. You know, we, we're talking 92, aren't we? Um, when when this whole thing of him being an owner-driver came about and he, he went and did those slightly bizarre tests at Paul Ricard wearing Eric Comas's helmet when everyone quite clearly could see it was Alain Prost. I remember seeing the cover of Autosport. It was, you know, very clearly Alain Prost's nose, which you could, <laughs> you could <laughs> mistake. Um, and, you know, you talk to people in that era, and I think it, uh, who were around, I think it was a very serious conversation. And for, the, for various reasons, the deal didn't materialise. Prost went off to Williams um, for 93. And then the team, you know, they, they were okay, weren't they? Ligier, sort of 93, 94, had the odd podiums with Blundell and, you know, Hockenheim 94. I think you've done a podcast about that already. They had double podiums. So they were sort of there or thereabouts. I think the 95 Ligier was a very good car, in fact. Um, they had that weird situation where Brundle was sharing the car, wasn't he, for half the season with... Um, Aguri Suzuki, which was a really odd setup, a bit like the Tony Oliuzzi and Christian Klein thing. So there, there were some weird things going on, but the car was a very, they were a very solid midfield team. I think it's fair to say that, you know, from Piratori's standpoint, he ended up with a Renault deal. Um, he was able to, what's the best way to describe this? Have a technical collaboration between. Benetton and Ligier, so that the Ligier looked a lot like the Benetton in 95 and 96. Um, and, and yeah, they, they were a very solid midfield team, which, you know, and he was probably making money out of it somehow and doing Flavio. Oh, he must have been. As we got to the end of January, the, the deal for Prost still wasn't done, but Peugeot came out and offered Prost their public support. Peugeot was entering the final year of a three-year deal with Jordan in 1997, and there were doubts about it continuing in F1. However, Peugeot president Jacques Calvet said, Prost can count on our support. At the end of 1997, Peugeot is available to become a technical partner of Prost's team, but with one condition, the investment must be inferior to what we currently have. So Matt, this Peugeot support would of course be from 1998 onwards, as Ligier already had a Moog and Honda engine deal for 97. But was that line from Peugeot about inferior investment perhaps an alarm bell. Oh, massively. And especially at this point, it wasn't like Peugeot was at the peak of F1 and could afford to chill out a little bit. I mean, it's, its first year with McLaren was spent basically catching fire and trying to get Philippe Allier into the car. And then McLaren dumped it after a single year. Things were quite respectable with, with Jordan. 95 wasn't bad. 96 was all right in places. Now, 97 would turn out to be really good. But at this point, when they're saying this, it's I remember the 96 Jordan Peugeot had some good had some good runs at circuits like Hockenheim and Spa. I think on the speed trap figures, it was always pretty good. But then Jordans were quite slippery at that point, too. So it wasn't necessarily all a, a giant engine. But basically, Peugeot hadn't yet conquered F1 and now was saying it wanted to invest less in something it wasn't succeeding at particularly already. It was that other than the we're all French here element, there wasn't really a lot to sell this deal, even at that stage. The deal dragged on past a targeted deadline of January 31st, primarily because Prost needed agreement from all the other teams to change the name from Ligier, and Jordan was balking at agreeing to the change. The name change needed to happen for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Prost had French partners lined up, who he said made it an essential requirement for Ligier to be renamed, as the team had previously had links to the previous government that was no longer in power. 
Also, by renaming Ligier rather than starting from scratch, Prost would be entitled to Ligier's slice of the prize money from F1. But Eddie Jordan was holding up the process because he wanted assurances that he'd be able to negotiate with Peugeot over a new engine supply deal alongside Prost from 1998. Peugeot and Prost up to this point had talked of an exclusive partnership. Even once the Prost takeover was confirmed, which we'll come to in a moment, Peugeot still called the tie-up exclusive while admitting that Jordan would be allowed to sign with Peugeot as well if it wanted. Eddie Jordan wrote in his book that he felt a victim of French and F1 politics and moves behind the scenes, although given the way Peugeot's F1 programme would fizzle out with Prost, he added, those involved were actually doing Jordan a favour, although at the time I did not see it that way. So Corrine, with with EJ balking at allowing Prost to, to change their identity and, and kind of wanting to have this Peugeot option in his back pocket, was he being needlessly difficult or actually quite smart? I think Eddie's a smart guy and I think anything he does is generally because he's thought about it. Um, at the end of the day, he, at that point, had a works Peugeot deal, as Matt's already highlighted. It wasn't necessarily the best engine <laughs> in Formula One, but it was still a works deal. And, you know, by the time they'd recovered from their McLaren debacle of 94, they were, you know, respectable enough, weren't they? By the time we got to sort of 96, 97 with, with Jordan, they were, they were a decent engine, um, nothing outstanding. And I think from Eddie's standpoint, he could see it being both a financial loss as well as, of course, technological loss in terms of being a works support. So... He was just trying to protect his his interests and you know and his team's interests really. Finally, in the middle of February, the deal for Ligier to become Prost Grand Prix was made official, and this was less than a month before the first race of the season. Prost said the hold up over the name change was frustrating, but he thanked Jordan for understanding that it was good for Formula One to allow it to go through. Prost had tried to specify that Jordan would only get access to a year-old spec of engine if it re-signed with, uh, with Peugeot, but Peugeot said it would uh, supply the same spec if a new deal was done. A big topic of conversation at the launch was the idea of the team representing France. Prost took a strong stance on this, saying it's not a French national team, it's not a political team, it's a private team. It was very important to see that the government was very enthusiastic about this project. They were really interested and they tried to push. But it was more important for us to be private or else you don't have the control. I want to make clear that I would not like you to think political authorities have put me in charge. Peugeot wasn't giving off quite the same vibe. Jacques Calvet said, we have been attracted by the national dimension of this project. I think that will be of huge benefit to the French automotive industry. It will demonstrate that this country can be in the lead. We can demonstrate that French technology is at the top level. We are a partner with something which we think will win, so we can say it's a French team. Prost is an international name and he can promote his team and our partnership all over the world. So, Matt, given all the different forces at work here, was Prost fighting a losing battle trying to convince people that this wasn't a French national team? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not not a hope at all. Even just the fact it was Prost getting involved with Ligier. I mean, Ligier had had at least one French driver for the whole of its F1 existence, apart from 93. And then it signed two British blokes with such similar names, it might have thought it was just signing one as the space <laughs> for Eric Bernard or something originally. So... It, 
Ligier just screamed French F1 team in everything about it. Um, so throwing in France's national racing driver hero on top of that, and even more so with all the rhetoric coming out of Peugeot, with Briatore saying this is basically only happening because it's a French national team. It's, yeah, I, I'm not surprised the world thought it was because it was. Deep down, Prost didn't feel quite the same way. And he said in several interviews that when it came time to complete the deal, Already, he was having doubts about going through with it, so he wasn't quite as convinced as he'd been making out at the launch. In 2010, he told Autosport in a special interview for the magazine's 60th anniversary that it was an error to embark on an adventure that I didn't feel was right from the very start and to believe in a French project. In 2013, he told Maurice Hamilton for F1 Racing that he didn't want to do it, but he was being pushed politically. And he expanded on this in greater detail in 2018 on F1's official Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson. Prost said he was approached by the French president, Jacques Chirac, because there was a chance that Ligier could disappear from F1 and Peugeot wanted to quit. Plus, Renault was pulling out at the end of 97. So in Prost's words, in France, we had a big chance that Formula One would disappear completely. Prost felt that this was his time to give something back after all F1 had given him. But over the course of the discussions, the deal changed. He said he was brought in on the promise of huge sponsorship money from French companies and free engines from Peugeot. But then by the time the deal was ready to sign, half as much money was being promised by the sponsors and Peugeot wanted paying for the engines. Prost said, two days before signing the contract, I said to the French president, I don't want to do it anymore because it's not what I thought and we are going nowhere. The president said, please do it for France. We will help you later on. I was never helped. That is the political aspect. This country is always like this. So, Karun, when we get so close to Prost signing the deal, should he have still been willing to trust his instincts there and back out? Or was it too late? I think he should have trusted his instincts, really. Well, you know, it's easy to see in hindsight. But when you can sense that the money's not going to be there and... Prost, of all people, knew that, you know, speed costs money, essentially, in the sport. How fast do you want to go? You know, and he'd been with three of the biggest teams over the last 20 years of Formula One. He'd been with McLaren, Ferrari and Williams, the three most successful teams, really, over the last 25 years preceding that. So he knew what proper, well-run, well-funded, big-budget operations were. And when he saw that this was not going to be the case for this team, really, should, he, he should have just pulled the plug. Um, you know, it would have, yeah, it would have been a little bit of loss of face in the short term. And, you know, potentially people would have said he's you know, abandoned this potentially brilliant French nationalistic project. And he would have taken a little bit of flack in the short term. But in the long term, he would have saved himself an awful lot of aggro and probably saved himself an awful lot of money. Yeah, I mean, he took that flack anyway when the team when the team went under, so he could have just got it out of the way sooner. And if we're to believe Briatore, he said that the team was able to keep running as he had it set up, so maybe it wasn't going to go to the wall. Who knows? But on track, while all of this was going on, things looked good. During all the wrangling behind the scenes, the combination of Olivier Panis, the Ligier... Mugen Honda engine and brand new tyre supplier Bridgestone looked potent in testing and Williams technical guru Patrick Head even predicted Panis could win a race. Panis scored points on Prost's debut in Australia with 5th place 
then a maiden podium next time out in Brazil, things could have got even better in Argentina where Panis qualified third and was running second to eventual winner Jacques Villeneuve in the first stint of the race. Panis was planning to make one less stop than Villeneuve and was seven seconds behind the Williams after 18 laps when his car broke down. But at this point, he was 12 seconds ahead of Eddie Irvine, who finished the race all over the back of Villeneuve, who was ill with food poisoning that weekend and faded in the closing stages. Got to get that excuse in there. Panis reckoned he could have won the race, and Prost said afterwards that the pride of being in the position to fight at the front of a Grand Prix overrode any disappointment the team felt about Panis retiring. So, Matt, I'm going to give you the task that I quite often give to Ed Straw on these, these podcasts. How do you think this race would have played out and would Panis likely have won if his car had kept going? I have attempted to work this out looking at lap times from the first half of the race when other cars pitted. true tribute to Ed. Yeah, yeah, completely. And it's the sort of thing I used to do in 1997 when I was 16 and not quite getting into pubs yet. I'd spend my evenings doing this and working out alternative scenarios for Grand Prix. Um, I think he would. There's a little... There were quite a few options when two stoppers could have come in and looking at what he did versus teammate Nakano, what, what his teammate Nakano did, although that was skewed by how far down the grid Nakano qualified. There's a few question marks over where um, Ralph Schumacher and Johnny Herbert would have factored in in terms of being traffic on the strategies they they were on. But yeah, he was if he'd kept up a similar sort of pace and then, okay, he was tailing off a little bit compared to Villeneuve as that stint went as that first stint went on, but then Villeneuve's pace plunged later on as his, as his belly got problematic. I, yeah, I think I think it would have worked out pretty well for Prost. That every not as good as Ed's calculation, but quite good calculation I've done has uh, has Panis being clearly ahead by the time the pit stops are finished. There we go. So you definitely would have won the race. You can all write that down. Yeah, fact. Yeah, Prost did get a reality yeah. check at Imola where Panis started fourth but slipped back due to a broken anti-roll bar. But the main story for a Prost driver from this race involved Panis's teammate, Japanese rookie Shinji Nakano who was wiped out in a collision with the arrows of reigning world champion Damon Hill. Hill blamed Nakano, saying, I tried to pass him and he just turned in on me. I was being held up by a back marker and I could see I was losing time. I went for the gap. He just did not move over and turned in. I thought it was an ambitious move, but I wasn't going to chug around at the back of the field. I don't feel I should be doing that. Around this time, rumours surfaced for the first time, but not the last, that Prost was trying to replace Nakano. Ligier had signed Nakano after some encouragement from Mugen Honda, and he came with an engine supply discount reckoned to be around $4 million. That didn't stop Prost wondering if he could get Nakano out of the seat, potentially covering the losses through some other sponsorship and better prize money if he could find a faster replacement. Nakano felt he'd not been given enough testing mileage to get up to speed as a rookie, and after a few meetings with Mugen, it became clear that this was a battle Prost was going to struggle to win. So at the Spanish Grand Prix, he declared Nakano's drive safe. Now, Karun, feel free to comment on your mate Damon's collision with Nakano as well here. But what did you think about Nakano's place in the team? Was was he out of his depth or being treated unfairly? Well, the reality is he wasn't really at the same level as Panis, was he? He was a long way behind. And you could see from Prost's standpoint why he wanted him replaced. You know, that that was a very, very good car. Panis, after the Spanish Grand Prix, was third in the World Championship, only behind Villeneuve and Schumacher, who obviously, as we know, went on to fight for that title till the end. So um, you could see why, from Prost's standpoint, he's sitting there thinking, hang on a second, we're just 
throwing points away because um, I think Nakano scored eventually in Canada. He got a point only after Panis obviously ended up in the barriers with his legs smashed up. But um, yeah, I, I can see why Prost wanted him replaced really. Um, Nakano wasn't one of the he wasn't a bad driver, but he wasn't one of the better Japanese drivers. You know, I think even the, when you look back in that era, you had the likes of Katayama and Aguri Suzuki, who were, who were capable on their day of scoring good results and even the odd podium. I don't think Nakano was really at that level. You successfully dodged a bit about Damon Hill there as well. Not uh, not his finest moment uh, into the last corner at, at Imola. Uh, tension between Mugen and Prost didn't get any better during this time when Peugeot engineers visited the Prost factory to get ahead on work for 1998 and Prost had to write a letter of apology to Mugen boss Hiratoshi Honda. Mugen engineering chief Tenji Sakai said Mugen didn't know if the Peugeot engineers saw anything of, of the engine, of its engine, and he added, we are not happy. Prost Grand Prix has apologised and we hope it will never happen again. Prost said the Peugeot engineers didn't see anything and didn't need to anyway. Matt, was this really as much of a problem as Mugen was making out? I mean, Peugeot were going to have to start preparing for 98 with Prost at some point, surely. It's context, isn't it, really? It's... You, you you don't want to do this with a Japanese company involved because of the reputation they would have for doing things absolutely properly and with, and with correct fairness. And also, they're, tr they're trying to sack his driver at the same time. So if that's winding them up on a weekly basis, then inviting their replacement to come around and potentially see their tech on the sly, nah, it's uh, it's it's not a good move. But no, you're absolutely right. They did have to start working on on the car build at some point. There were rule changes coming up as well that would have had, a, had an impact. So in the normal circumstances, probably not a problem. If you're already you know finding ways to irritate your partner, don't don't put that on top. As Karun mentioned at the start of the episode, Panis finished second in Spain meaning that after six rounds of the season, he was third in the championship behind only Villeneuve and Schumacher. Autosports' Andrew Benson called Panis the surprise star of the season up to this point. And in an interview he did with the Frenchman, Panis said the team's 1997 car was so good, it has changed my life. Panis credited Ligier with the decision to stop working on a flawed 1996 car to focus on 1997 development early. And he also took issue with suggestions that Prost's success was only down to Bridgestone. And he pointed out there was often a big gap between him and the next Bridgestone runner. Although in the same breath, he somewhat weakened that argument as he said Prost was Bridgestone's lead development team. And in a recent interview on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast, he told Tom Clarkson they were making tyres for our car and it made a huge difference. Now, Karun... You said that that Spanish Grand Prix where Panis charged through to second was your standout memory from this year. How impressed were you by everything we'd seen from the Prost-Panis combination up to this point? I mean, super impressed, right? You know, as you said, they nearly won in Argentina. They they were very competitive and it was genuine pace. It wasn't like they were getting results because everyone in front of them had fallen off. He was qualifying well and running with good pace. And I've been led to believe by more than one person that that Spanish Grand Prix was the key point at which both McLaren and Benetton decided to switch to Bridgestone for 1998. Um, they saw what Panis achieved that weekend and they conclusively decided that, hang on a second, this Bridgestone, this Bridgestone tile is proving to be a lot better than we expected it to be. 
Um, and and I, I think, I, I can't remember where I read it, even recently, that it was, um, it was a key point for Ron Dennis to make the decision as well. But I think certainly the engineers, I recall, some of the people telling me at the time, that they watch Panis, especially if you look at the tie day. And, you know, at that stage, Barcelona was quite, they were quite prone to blistering because they had the two fast corners who were the end of the lap. Um, think back to the Hungarian Grand Prix where the Goodyears were all struggling with blistering and you had this extraordinary side of Damon and the Arrows on Bridgestone tyres going past Michael Schumacher. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think this was a, this was a big, big shock, I think, in some ways to Goodyear that, you know, Bridgestone had arrived and straight off the bat in their first proper season of Formula One, they were very, very competitive as a tyre manufacturer. You know, they, um, and even the wet tyre, right? You know, look at Barrichello and Monaco. It wasn't just the slicks. It was actually, they, they nailed it even on the wets. So on the whole, I think it was a big, big um, marker for Bridgestone. So I understand why Panis wants to play down, you know, Bridgestone's role in all of this. But the reality is, I, I think Bridgestone had a big part to play in their um, competitiveness. Yeah, completely. And I think um, Bridgestone used to have a, a motorsport history site uh, in English. I think it only exists in Japanese now. And in there, they, were, they did a, a section on joining the F1 grid in 97. And they said that they'd initially planned to come in for, the, um, for 98. But then they realized that they'd been developing the tires for so long and Goodyear had gone so many years without competition that Bridgestone actually decided in Japan, well, let's not give Goodyear a year to kind of get their development heads on and, and prepare for us to come in. So they made the jump a year earlier than they'd originally planned. And, and this this was the result of it. You know, this was a a company that was clearly pushing on with tyre development against Goodyear, who hadn't had any competition since Pirelli in the early 90s. And those Pirellis were only good in very set circumstances. Unfortunately, it was at the Canadian Grand Prix next time out where Panis suffered a massive crash and broke both of his legs late in the race. So we go straight from Karun's main memory of the year to Matt's. The accident was caused by a suspension failure at the rear of the car, which pitched the Prost into the wall on the right-hand side and then back across onto the left into the tyre barrier. The front of the car went straight through the tyres and then broke in contact with the concrete wall behind it. Speaking on Beyond the Grid, Panis said he was worried about needing to have a leg amputated so he asked the marshals to get him out of the car as quick as possible so he could get a better idea of what was going on. And at the time, the marshals were criticised for this because they shouldn't have removed him before the doctors arrived on the scene. Panis added, I wanted to feel myself, try to get out of the car and feel everything. The accident was a big one. I saw my legs were broken. I saw it was bad, but I wanted to be sure I could feel everything. Panis was rushed to hospital where he was seen by a doctor who had finished a shift that afternoon and left to go on holiday. But when the doctor heard on the radio that an F1 driver had been injured, uh, he rushed back to work because he was an F1 fan and he felt he needed to help. Panis asked that doctor if he would be able to race again. And the doctor said it was possible if they operated on the Sunday night. When he told Panis the recovery would be quicker if they put pins in both legs, Panis said, go for it. So Matt, as we know, Clearly, this derailed the middle of Prost's season. With the momentum Panis had at this stage of the year, what do you think was possible without this accident? Could he have hung on to third in the championship and maybe won a race at some point? Well, I've worked this out as well. So, Ed, when you, you when you listen, I hope you're at least slightly proud. 
yeah, I, I simulated the rest of the season, not particularly scientifically, just looking at what Trillian Nakano did and what Panis might have done instead. And he doesn't quite hang on to... It depends if we're looking at third with Schumacher in the points or, or without. Um, I think he ends up fifth with Schumacher removed, but he's only three points behind... Sorry, four points behind David Coulthard in third place and three behind Lacey. And he does win Hungary along the way because in my uh, in my scribbled on, on a bit of paper simulation, look at what Nakano did, look at how good the Bridgestones were. I think Panis would have um, would have had that. Um, there were a lot of races in the second half of the season though where the Bridgestones didn't really do much on on any car, and I don't think Panis would have would have changed that. So there were races where he would have been you know lower top ten out out of the points completely. I think he was he'd been there from a lot of Bridgestone's very best days, even before the accident. Um, but yeah, I mean, fifth in the championship in what had been a Ligier the year before. I know the guy had, uh, had got that uh, that random Monaco win, but that's that's a very serious outcome um, and a very and a very impressive stat if he'd been able to pull that off, which I'm declaring as fact based on my calculations that he 100% definitely would have done. Yeah, very impressive achievement and very impressive working out there. I, I love that. Uh, so yeah, we'll lock that one in as well. Prost obviously needed a replacement driver and a shootout test was quickly set up between French driver Emmanuel Collard, who'd been linked in the Carno seat already, and Minardi rookie Jarno Trulli. Prost also tried to get Williams test driver Jean-Christophe Bouillon, another French option, but Williams wouldn't release him. Trulli came out on top with Prost praising his speed and consistency and his technical feedback. He later said, I had to choose in a very short time. It was not easy. I was already a fan of Yano's, and when we tested him, it was obvious that he was the best choice, even if it was quite difficult because Emmanuel is French, but I need to think of the team first. Corinne, what did you think of the decision to bring Trulli over from Minardi? Was this a, a smart move? Was Trulli kind of an obvious candidate? I, I think it was the right decision to bring Trulli uh, on board. You know, he A, he was race sharp. Admittedly, he was in a Minardi, but... The, the reality was, at least he was racing that year. He um, he was highly rated. You know, he'd come out of Formula 3 where he'd been very, very competitive. Um, won the Macau Grand Prix the year before, really. But, you know, on a count back, had it taken away from him. It got awarded to Ralph Furman. Um, and he was he was a very, very... He was actually hot property at that time, wasn't he? He was one of this generation of young talents coming into F1 who people were talking about, you know potentially being there for many years to come and winning all these races. And um, so I think it was it was a good move from from Prost to put him in there. There weren't really that many drivers around, I don't think, with experience who, who would have been a better choice. So if there aren't any experienced candidates around who are free and, you know, contractually available to stick in the car, why not go for a young hotshot who could, you know, prove to be quite useful and in the end I think Jano you know he scored points in in Germany that year didn't he um and uh, yeah I think he he did it he did a decent job but clearly Panis has shunned to just completely knock the wind out of cross sales that year yeah I think you're right actually when you think about it who who else was around uh maybe they could have brought Martin Brundle out of retirement I don't think he was quite ready uh for the commentary box uh in 97 Prost effectively said that Collard missed out because of fitness, adding, selecting somebody that was immediately operational, especially in terms of fitness, was a key consideration. We thought long and hard about the possibility of Emmanuel Collard taking over from Olivier, 
However, in Emmanuel's current physical situation, this would have been a premature decision and we decided mutually not to take the risk. Collard spoke to spoke about this to Autosports' James Newbold in 2021, saying he was completely destroyed mentally and physically after suffering late-race heartbreak at Le Mans with Porsche just before this. And he uh, felt that with the close links between Prost and Trulli's manager, Briatore, it was decided who would get the drive before the test even took place. Collard said, They called me, but I don't know why. I think they had no choice. They had to call a French driver... I was the only one at the time, so they called me because they had to. It was a joke at the end. When you are not driving a Formula One car for more than one year, your neck is destroyed. They knew this, so why did they call me? That was an excuse. uh, That's it. I think the deal was done before. Uh, So, Matt, that's Collard's side of the story. Any sympathy? Yeah, a little bit. I don't think he was massively well treated there, but I also don't think that there was a huge injustice in the outcome. It was more the process was a bit harsh and clumsy. Now, um, I, I saw the opinion of uh, Sam Smith, our Formula E writer on this, because he is so much better than me on early 90s Formula 3000 and on sports cars. And just, yeah, how did you rate Collard? And he was very, very positive about about him, just felt his face never fitted in F1, but that was a bit that was a bit harsh because of the form he'd shown elsewhere. He did test for a lot of teams in the early 90s, almost one of those people who'd tested with so many teams that if none of them ever put him in a race seat, that was probably for logical reasons. Um, Sam did also get the opinion of a, a driver who'd moved in similar circles to Collard to see what this person felt about him. And the reply he got was just fast but fragile. So, yeah, somewhere between those two points, probably. Truly delivered on the faith placed in him immediately by qualifying sixth in France for the team's home race, although he slipped back in the race and then lost out when a late gamble on intermediates didn't pay off. From there, his form was patchy. He finished eighth at Silverstone, where he was outraced by Nakano. Then he got that fourth place in Germany to pick up his first points. He was a distant seventh and behind Nakano again in Hungary, where Damon Hill's Bridgestone shod arrows should have won the race. And then Trulli's car wouldn't fire up on the grid in Belgium, uh, and he finished tenth in Italy. We'll come to his final race for Prost in this season in a moment, because the Austrian Grand Prix was a bit special. But reflecting on This summer run of races later in the year, Prost said he found Trulli's form somewhat puzzling. He said, I still thought he had potential, but he wasn't using it, and I didn't know why. For me, they were not technical reasons, but psychological. So, Karun, let's ignore Austria for a moment. How would you assess Trulli's first six races for Prost, especially in the circumstances he faced, being promoted as a rookie with just a handful of races under his belt already? It's never easy, right? It's never easy to be dropped into someone else's car in the middle of the season. Um, you know, we've seen great drivers have to do that, and some struggle and some haven't. And um, I think, yeah, he did a decent job, you know, and he was a rookie as well. It's not like he had years and years of knowledge in the back of his head to just rely on if he's been dropped into it. Think of Mansell 94. Straight in, Magnico, bang, front row of the Williams, challenging for pole. But Nigel had a decade of racing experience in Formula 1 to bank on by that stage. And, and Jano didn't, you know, he didn't have a dozen races at that stage. So um, I, I think the fact that he had the ups and downs were, well, A, is sort of symptomatic of a rookie. But now when you look back at the rest of Jano's career, you kind of go, well, it's kind of symptomatic of Jano as well, wasn't it? Um you know, we, we kind of saw that, these brilliant highs around Monaco and 
Suzuka and the Toyota and places like that. Uh, and then some races where you just didn't turn up. So, um, yeah, it's funny, you know, now when you look back in hindsight, whether that was an indicator of what the rest of his, his time in F1 would be. But very, very, very quick driver. And I think as we're about to discuss, Austria was, was absolutely stunning. Yeah, I think it's, it's actually funny when you look back at it, it really was uh, a sign of things to come, which I don't think any of us really thought that at the time. You just assumed that with experience, he would harness his speed a bit better. But Panis made his return to the F1 paddock at the Belgian Grand Prix, where it was announced that he had signed a new contract with the team for 1998 and 99. The second seat was more interesting, though, as Prost thought he was close to getting Damon Hill to be Panis's teammate. However, this became a bit of a saga with Prost even admitting to the French media that despite daily contact between both parties, one day it's going to happen, the next it's not. In the end, Hill signed for Jordan and Prost didn't hold back, saying he was disappointed with how Hill conducted himself. Prost believed they had a firm deal and he felt Hill had tried to use the Jordan offer as a way to get more money out of Prost. Prost added, We were great friends when we drove together at Williams in 1993 but I have now seen him in a different light. It is just as well we didn't manage to do a deal. I did feel that Damon was the perfect driver to help take us forward, but it looks as if I was wrong. Hill reacted angrily to this in an interview with David Tremaine, who we recently had on our Spa 1992 episode. Damon said, why does everyone think I'm so into money? If that were the case, I would have taken Sauber's offer. And I'll just interject here to say that that offer from Sauber was one million per race, regardless of results. Uh, Damon said, I'm, I'm sick and tired of all of this. What I wanted was the right environment. And I didn't think I would get that at Prost with a French team, a French engine and a French teammate. Damon referenced that final comment uh, in his book where he said that upset Prost as it came across as Damon saying the team was too French. But Karun, you know Damon much better than we do. Do you think he would have played games with Prost over money? But even if he did, possibly, um, and if he did, it's kind of his job, to be honest. You know, a racing <laughs> driver's career is finite and they've got to do everything they can to negotiate the best deal. And let's be honest, he was trying to negotiate a deal with Eddie Jordan and Alain Prost, two pretty shrewd and experienced operators in the sport. Damon, you know, was... At, that, at the stage of this negotiation we're talking about, he's still the reigning world champion. So there's market value in that. He'd driven some good races for Arrows. Um, obviously, Budapest we all talk about. But even at Heret, the last race of the year, he qualified within a couple of tenths of pole, actually. You know, we all forget that bit because we're, we're sort of distracted by the top three being equal and on that... Um, position time i think it was within yeah. a tenth i think exactly it was a tenth. so you know damon was driving actually really well in 97 it's just the car was a dog so uh, i think it, you know i understand why alan was probably upset but it's damon's job to negotiate the best deal he can for himself and when we look back at it going to jordan was the right place to go if you look at the competitiveness of 98 and 99 the jordan was a great car uh from the middle of from sort of Silverstone 98, wasn't it? Whereas the Prost just kept slipping further and further backwards. Yeah, Damon definitely dodged a bullet by not signing for Prost. So the Jordan deal for Hill was announced at the Austrian Grand Prix. And this would be Trulli's final start of the season. And as we said, this was a memorable one. 
Jano started third and took the lead at the end of the first lap when Mika Hakkinen's McLaren broke down, as it had a habit of doing in 97. Trulli led the first 37 laps of the race. Then he was jumped by Villeneuve's Williams in the pit stops. And after 58 of the 71 laps, he suffered heartbreak when his engine blew up while running second. Trulli said in the first half of the race, he was in total control and he was managing his pace, occasionally speeding up to show the cars behind that he had more in hand if he needed it. But he felt the engine start to lose power a few laps before his stop, which is uh, which he reckoned was why Villeneuve was able to jump him. So Matt, this drive went unrewarded on the day, but how good was this performance? It might have been Trulli's second best F1 drive in his whole career, hadn't it, after, after the Monaco win. That interesting line about him feeling the engine start to go is is a nice get out because that's the point in the performance where you think, oh, he's turned into into future Trulli. Until <laughs> then, he's he's so in control, he's, he's consistent, he's got some time in hand. And OK, good day for Bridgestone's car is, is good, but he wasn't just a rookie. His car racing career before 97 had been very short as well. And he's in, he's been thrown into the situation. He's got championship contenders in his wake. The pressure on that, the pressure on that was someone who we wouldn't, in retrospect, have seen as the most psychologically strong of that generation as well. And he's handling that with good, consistent performance, not getting rattled. And then engine engine goes sick. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, assume it was the engine going sick and not Trulli's pace just going, ah. But um, yeah, if, it, if a podium would have been brilliant that day, if the car had kept going, I think that was a massively impressive drive. And it would have been great if he could have done that a bit more regularly over the next decade and a bit. Yeah, and I looked into this as well. The, the because I remember it as a Bridgestone race, but because the, the Stewarts were up there as well. But I think the Stewarts two stopped, so they obviously looked good at the start yeah. of the race because they were lighter on fuel, whereas Trulli's pace was totally legit. But a week later at the Nurburgring, Panis was back. He'd missed seven races since his accident in mid June, and here he was just before the end of September racing in F1 again. By this point, Panis had already tested an F3 car and an F1 car, and he said Prost had tried to call him in on his first run during the F1 test because he was already going so fast. Panis said the big challenge at that test was to make sure he could take the first corner at Manicor flat out straight away, because if he couldn't, then it meant he was scared and his F1 career would be finished. The main challenge he faced in returning to the cockpit was generating enough braking power, so he asked the team to make him a big brake pedal so he could brake with both feet, and he told them not to tell Prost. Panis would race with the pins in his legs for 18 months, and he said in his Beyond the Grid interview, when I was driving, I don't even think about the pins. I say I have a stronger leg. I know if I have a crash, it's bad, but what I do is my dream. I'm not even thinking about the pins. At the time, Panis called his Nürburgring comeback a training race and Prost added that while it was maybe one race too soon, he appreciated it was important to Panis to come back as quickly as possible. And he also felt it was just a preparation exercise for the final two races of the year. But Panis still scored a point and Prost felt he could have gone even quicker if he'd not lost places at the start and got stuck in traffic. So Karun, for Panis to come back three and a half months after breaking both legs, and immediately finish in the points. How impressive is that? Really impressive. I mean, and, and the Nürburgring is a tricky circuit. You know, you don't have a lot of time for rest, to be honest. Um, well, it's a narrow track. You've got lots of cambers in the road, so the minimum speeds are quite high. So for a driver who's been out of the cockpit for 
as you say, you know, for, for seven races um, and all that time, that's quite a challenge to come back to. And I think he, you know, the fact he arrived and was immediately able to get the car back into the points, which is where really the Prost deserved to be all season long in terms of pace, was was super impressive. That would, however, be the last point Prost would score in 1997. Bridgestone's first home race at Suzuka was disappointing, and Mugen also had a weekend to forget there with five engine failures across the weekend. Then uh, at Jerez, Panis started ninth and finished seventh on a weekend where the Bridgestone tyres were better suited to arrows, hence Damon Hill was leading the way up behind the three-way tie on the grid. But Panis also reckoned that Prost had been left behind slightly over the course of the season. He said a mid-season rule change that opened up how the electronics could be used for throttle control had hurt Prost, and he also said the chassis hadn't changed much, which supported a theory that Prost's design team had perhaps run out of development potential with its car concept, which dated back to 1995 when it first started enjoying what I think Karun described earlier as a, a close technical relationship with Benetton. Benetton, and in particular Flavio, Flavio Briatore, have always denied that there was any data sharing going on here. But Panis was uh, was flat out in his Beyond the Grid interview. Speaking about 1997, he said, we still had the people of Benetton doing the car. For me, in 1997, it was a Benetton Honda. We were doing it ourselves at Ligier, but it was all the technical points of Benetton. And we put in the Mugen engine, which was a fantastic engine, and we had Bridgestone tyres. The car we had that season was unbelievable. We felt we had put our finger on something. We believed in 1998 we would kill everyone, but it was not the case. In the winter of 97-98, we made our own car in the factory, and this car was a disaster. So Matt, was the way Prost's season petered out a little bit once Panis returned, perhaps the first sign that the team was lacking on the technical side? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think the way Panis describes that is spot on, really. Because of the, the Benetton-based heritage, this was the first time you really saw what, what a Prost team could do, and it and it wasn't very good. And it was it was dragging out what it could with the inherited stuff. But no, it was it was the trajectory was was pretty clear in retrospect. The fact that Panis had come back with that injury with his legs still compromised um did give it a bit of a bit of a question mark. Was it his fitness? Was it the car? You know, Bridgestone was up and down still. Mugen, like you say, had a had a pretty disastrous Suzuka. So there were lots of things that it could have been. But when you look at the whole journey that Ligier went on of really only being respectable once Benetton was involved, apart from 93, which was a kind of cool anomaly with Brundle and Blundell. Um, yeah, that that technical package was only good when it could rely heavily on something inherited off Briatore's lot. And uh, everything that followed 97 really hammered that home. Now, Prost had tried to dump Nakano again for that season finale at Jerez, and once again, Mugen said no. But after the season, Trulli signed a two-year deal with the team for 98 and 99. Prost praised Trulli for the job he did in difficult circumstances and the ease with which he adapted, plus his desire to learn, his motivation and the quality of his work. He also praised the maturity Trulli showed in leading the Austrian Grand Prix, which Prost felt was a result of the Hill rumours coming to an end. Prost said, I told him the Tuesday before Austria that Damon was not going to join the team and that seemed to change his whole approach. We always supported him, but it was not easy for him to hear all the time that Damon could be joining the team. Resisting this pressure is part of the game, 
but he is 23 and has only competed in 40 car races, so it's very difficult. Trulli said he was thrilled to continue his career with Prost, adding, there is no doubt that the team has a great future ahead of it. Oh, Yano, if only you had known. But Karun, let's let's take hindsight out of this for a moment. At the end of the first year, with Panis and Trulli signed up, Peugeot coming in, they'd had a great season with Jordan. Did it look like Prost had set itself up well for the future? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, just, you look at it and go, they didn't have a works deal. You know, it wasn't a works Honda deal, it was a Mugen deal. They had Nakano in the car, who was decent, but not brilliant. Uh, and yet, they were right up there. You know, they the car, in terms of of being quick enough to score points, was was a really good car. And you sort of look at it and go, hang on a second, with um, surely Prost is going to be able to access all these all these sponsors and um, all this backing from France. You've got a Peugeot engine. This is going to be brilliant. They're going to they're guaranteed that they're going to be in the top top five. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> the case. I, it just sums up the uh, the misery of the winter of '97 into '98 for me because '97 is my favourite F1 season. So wide open and yet a brilliant one on one title battle, being a great storyline at the front. And then '98 for me was just was just rubbish. We'd gone from nearly every team getting a podium at some point to everyone who wasn't McLaren and Ferrari being terrible. And you had so many teams at the end of '97 who you thought, oh, they were really promising, but now they're adding this. Like Stuart will have a whole year of experience. Okay, Arrows has lost Hill, but Sarlo's really good. Jordan's hit really on an upward on an upward trajectory. Benetton's refreshing its driver lineup and Prost. You know, it's got two really good drivers. Peugeot's got quite good with Jordan. Now this will definitely work. And then, yeah, like I say, there's only two competitive teams. And for me, 98 was just absolutely dismal. Um, some of those teams that got 98 wrong then got respectable. 99 was pretty good. But um, apart from a few laps of Melbourne where Prost looked pretty good and uh, a bit of uh, clever weather radar reading, you know, this, this, was, this was a tone set for Prost, really. There's a good preview there to what I guess will be the next instalment of the Prost Grand Prix um, story. But yeah, I think the, the technical side, Prost 497, the Ligier design team had made some changes to the Benetton, but fundamentally they had a Benetton car and it was their job to improve just the aero. Whereas 98, the rules change, you've got to start from scratch, you're doing it on your own. And they were massively found wanting. So yeah, it was a real shame. It's it's really it's only downhill for Prost from there. Uh, the end, of course, in two thousand and one and the start of two thousand and two before they finally go under is another story in itself that we will also do uh, in great detail in the future. But we felt it was important to start the Prost Grand Prix story, which, as I say, people constantly ask us when are we going to talk about this team. We started at the beginning. We started with the the good story, and basically. Any other episode we do about this team will be uh, about all the times that were were dreadful. So we will leave it there. It started well, but perhaps Prost should have listened to himself when he had those doubts about uh, about doing it in the first place. And maybe Panis breaking his legs was a sign that it was doomed from the start. But thanks to Karun and Matt for joining us for this one. Thanks for your enthusiasm when I first suggested the episode. You both wanted to be on it. Good to have you two both along again. If you're listening to this and you haven't got your question in about anything to do with F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005, you don't have much more time as we'll be recording those episodes very soon. So get those questions in 
using the hashtag bringbackv10s on Twitter or email bringbackv10s at the-race.com. Before then, we have a couple more of our regular episodes to get through. And next time, we're heading to 2005 and a race that featured a thrilling finish as Fernando Alonso and Michael Schumacher did battle all the way to the chequered flag in that year's San Marino Grand Prix.